Welcome to Walk In Three Worlds podcast and I'd like to acknowledge our First Nations people, particularly the Jurupul and the Yagara people of this land that we're standing on and, and having our conversation today. I pay my respects to all elders from all cultures around the world and in particular our Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And our guest today is none other than a great friend Mr. Peter Forday. G'day, Pete. <laughs> G'day, Greg. So I'd like you to tell everyone about who you are, who's your mob, where you're from, and sort of a general sort of background. Sure, sure. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, where am I from? Um, so uh, first comes to mind is uh, I'm from Rocky. So, uh, Rocky is where? Rockhampton. Ah. That's from, I'm from Rockhampton. I was born and bred in Rockhampton. Uh, left there uh, over 35 years ago, uh, or close to 40, 40 years ago, actually, 40 years ago. And uh, um, But Rocky is home. And uh, so that's, um, I didn't know it then, but that's uh, the Durrambul people, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but when I was growing up, I certainly didn't know that. Uh, so um, uh, prior to that, I guess my family come from southern China, mm-hmm. around Canton or Guangdong area, Guangzhou. Um, we, it's a kind of delta region of China, and, but I've got grandparents that were born in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, one grandparent born in Darwin, another grandparent born in, in, in the Torres Strait. And so we go back a long way, around about the mid, just after the mid-1850s, uh, my family started to come out. So on one side of my family, on both sides of my family, I guess, at one level, I'm a fourth generation uh, Australian uh, of Chinese heritage, mm-hmm. and, and very proudly so for Chinese heritage. Both my parents were born in Australia. Yeah. Um, and uh, one, my my dad was born in Rockhampton. My mum was born in Darwin. And both uh, with Chinese heritage. Both, both with Chinese yeah. heritage. Full Chinese heritage, as far as we know. Yes. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, interesting about that period around the eighteen fifties, because historically Australia hadn't become a federation, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of um, Chinese uh, visitors uh, coming for the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Were they? drawn to Australia at the time, do you think, around that period because yeah. of the gold rush? Yeah, absolutely, certainly. It was around that um, that gold rush. I'm not sure how many, but there was, I read once, like in the thousands, mm. thousands yeah, and yeah, thousands. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly thousands, tens of thousands, I would say. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess my family, uh, that was part of the reason they came out was uh, gold. They weren't um, gold diggers as such, um, uh, so they came out to set up business. Um, and so my mother's side of the family had set up business in um, in Darwin mm-hmm. and were heavily involved in the community up there. Uh, my father's side of the family, my grandfather uh, on my on my dad's side, um, he came out as part of the gold rushes. But he came out first um, to help his uncle out in, in his business, but then quickly uh, ended up in Cooktown. Um, but he wasn't there to dig for gold. Mm. He was there to sell fruit. Uh, and veggies to the to the gold diggers, and so that's how he made his money. Uh, and he used to uh, cart around fruit around the gold fields and around Cooktown, uh, selling it to the miners. Um, and in those days, he wasn't allowed actually allowed to own a shop per se. So that's so, why they had carts. So, so why was that? Because is this all linked to 
this thing that I'd heard called the Australia Wide Policy. Yeah, the or White Australia. That, yeah, yeah. What is it called? The, the White Australia Policy. White Australia White Policy, that's right. Which actually didn't kind of end until the mid-70s, really. Officially. 1970s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, when, when it officially... So when the last it kind of the bastion. Oh, look, I, I couldn't actually tell you the, the exact date, but you're looking at, um, you know, just uh, probably from the 1880s onwards, you know, after, you know, a fairly large influx of Chinese coming over from the gold and, and, and fears of, uh, you know, probably the first rise of the fear of the yellow peril uh, uh, taking over Australia. Um, uh, that's when, when that happened. And so uh, I, was, I, I have furniture for a little while, which used to say, you know, made by uh, white labour only. Uh, and things like that, lovely pieces of silky oak. And, um, so my, my family was certainly part of that generation, but as I said, they weren't gold diggers as such, um, but uh, they were, they were uh, commercial people, they were shop, shopkeepers. Uh, yeah. yeah. Why do you think there was so much fear about this yellow peril? What, what was driving that, do you think? Was it a British thing, a European thing? Where was it coming from? Uh, certainly, you've got to remember that that was also around the same time about the forced separation of Aboriginal kids from, from their families and, and um, a, under the belief that um, uh, children that were part Aboriginal, part European were, were at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, just by the very nature of being part Aboriginal and so r being removed from their family. So there was a definite mood at the time to um, keep Australia white and that was seen as, uh, as a thing to do. And so Chinese and other cultures, particularly Chinese coming over, was seen as um, potentially dangerous for the country, um, not, not good for the, the racial mix of the country. And so there were lots of restrictions placed on what they could do, um, etc. And uh, so it was tough times. Um, mm. uh, I also times. heard that white policy had, was Pacific Islanders and uh, Asian sort of uh, migrants at that time. Yeah, Which, I mean today in today's standard, it's pretty racist, isn't it? Like I, but that was the spirit of the time, wasn't it? That, that pretty racist in in those days as well, I would say. But they yeah. may not have perceived it in that way. No. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. did you have much interaction up in Rockhampton in Rocky with young First Nations people at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, not not in a conscious sort of a way mm. i mean um i was talking about this just the other day I, I don't know it's hard to guess but i i would think growing up a good 15 20 maybe at times 25 percent of my class were uh, of aboriginal um, background um uh, um when i think back on it mm. um did we reflect upon it and talk about it no not a lot so so narimbara uh was a suburb just on the north side of rockhampton and uh uh, it was known to be um, reasonably well populated by Aboriginal families and, 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 and Mount Morgan, which is a town outside of Rockhampton, an old gold mining town, was mm. uh, very, very heavily populated by um, Aboriginal families. And certainly playing sport and playing soccer uh, and, and, and my knowledge of rugby league, you know, not that I played rugby league, but certainly a lot of the teams that came from the, that town and that suburb uh, were heavily dominated by, by Aboriginal kids. Yeah, and but, did but I, I went to school with a lot of Aboriginal kids. Yeah, yeah. Did they ever talk about much about their culture, or no. did they? Did you know much about the history that Australia shared no. with them? No, no there's no, no discussion. No, there was no, no discussion at all. Um, uh, we knew there were Aboriginals in our school. Um, there was there a, to a degree, there was some separation in terms of. Um, um, 
I guess some of the Aboriginal kids would would play together and mix together and play sport together. And but I think when I, you know going to school, particularly in primary school, there was a lot more mixing of the kids, mm. um, and we didn't really think about it. We certainly didn't have any discussions about. It. We certainly didn't have any discussions about local Aboriginal history or local mm. Aboriginal politics. That just never came up. Um, if if there was any discussion around Aboriginal people, it was usually done in quite a racist, derogatory way, not directed at, at individual kids per se, but more directed at, at you know the Aboriginal population. That was certainly the standard derogatory comments, which that, I'm sure I, I contributed to as well. Yes, and as you grew up and you moved to Brisbane, what year did you move to Brisbane? Yeah, I moved to Brisbane in 82. Yep. Uh, so I came down here for university. Um, uh, my parents had a strong belief in education and uh, I'm the fourth, uh, sorry, I'm the third uh, brother of four boys and, and one girl. And um, uh, I just, it was, my, my two older brothers had gone to uni at uh, International House, uh, mm -hmm. uh, where they stayed, they went to University of Queensland, uh, stayed at International House. And uh, so it was just really, it was always going to happen. So, so that's how I ended up in Brisbane. So what did you do at uni? What, what was your study? <laughs> I studied uh, speech pathology. Um, my parents, being a, a Chinese uh, lad, um, my, I was the one designated in the family that probably should become the doctor. That's why my, my mum in particular really wanted me to be a doctor. I wasn't too keen on being a doctor. I was really interested in being um, a special ed teacher. and uh, um, But I don't think my mum was too keen on that. And so I thought speech pathology was a good halfway point. It sounded like a cross between the two. I had no idea what speech pathologists did, <laughs> to be honest, but it just sounded like it was. A, so that's what I enrolled in. You know. Did you speak um, Mandarin or Cantonese at home? Was that ever we, spoken? Um, we, my parents, uh, particularly my mum, uh, she spoke Cantonese. And my dad could understand Cantonese, speak a bit of it. And, and certainly when they didn't want us to understand things, they'd speak in Cantonese across the table with each other. Uh, in hindsight, it was probably a bit of broken Cantonese from my, my, my dad's side. My mum was more fluent because she was actually sent back to live in China uh, as part of the White Australia problem. Well, she wasn't sent back. Her mother was sent back. So because she was a child, she went back with her, mm. with her mother, um, which is a story in itself. Um, uh, but uh, so, so, no, we didn't grow up learning Chinese because um, we, I guess it was the belief that uh, you should become as white as possible. Um, and so, you know, we all were given very English names and my parents all have very regal sort of names, very old-fashioned English names, um, and my uncles and aunties are the same. Um, my two older brothers were given Chinese names when they were born, but by the time it came to me, the third one, they sort of, you know, what's the point? Uh, so they didn't do it. For a little while there, I encouraged my parents to teach me Chinese, uh, but it's hard unless you're immersed in it, you're speaking mm -hmm. it every day. But certainly there were certain names of food and certain phrases like sit down, hurry up, eat up, those sort of things I can I can say in Cantonese. So my, mm. my parents, because we come from Canton and, and that um, just north of, um, of, of Hong Kong, that uh, you know, that's the majority of people spoke Cantonese. And so a, lot of, a lot of my age group and my parents' age group, most of them were Cantonese. So, so you're growing up um, as a fourth generation uh, ABC. Mm. I think mm. you told ABC, me about the ABC. Yeah. Means Australian-born Chinese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. So the ABC network is actually really Australian-born Chinese, not yeah. Australian Broadcast Corporation. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, but growing up and um, eventually your career takes you into uh, where I met you as the CEO of Multilink. In Logan City, yeah, and yeah, yeah. what a great 
opportunity to make some change. So tell me about that role and how long you were there and what what were some of the great things you saw for new people coming to the country? These weren't first-born Australians. These were people coming from different countries mm. into Australia mm. uh, to be known as Australians. Well, my journey into Multilink uh, Community Services uh, and the whole multicultural sector started um, officially it was 2006 when I joined Multilink, but but I guess my, my entry into uh, the area of multiculturalism and working with cultural diversity started a few years before. I was, I was a public servant at the time. Mm-hmm. I was working in the areas of child protection and, and youth justice and um, um, people used to call me up <laughs> and they used to say things like, oh, Peter, we've got this family from such and such a country. What do you reckon we should do with them? And I go, why are they asking me? Because I knew why they were asking me because of how I looked. And, uh, and I thought about it, you know. I thought there were worse things to have a reputation for than, than understanding cultural diversity or multiculturalism. So I went place to answer them. Mm. I probably didn't really know what I was talking about, to be honest. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I used to answer them. Uh, and so I, I got a bit of a reputation as, as having some expertise in, in cultural diversity at the time. Um, when I just before I got to Multilink, I was the manager of uh, Logan Youth Justice. I'd, I'd ended up down there, and I was the manager there for a couple of years. And every time um, I walked up the road to go to a networking meeting at Multilink, I used to really enjoy walking into its front door. Uh, it's an old, um, small suburban shopping set of shops, and and used to have a really nice feel about it. And I remember saying at the time when I went there, I said, "If it feels this good to work in, uh, to walk in here, what would it be like to work in here?" And when the job came up for the CEO there, I thought, oh, I'll put in an application, I'll just see what, see what happens. And, and, and I got the job, and I was, uh, uh, which was really nice. But interestingly enough, when I got the job, quite a few people from within the sector said to me, oh, Peter, we're so glad you got the position. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, oh, at last, at last, one of us has got the position. And I said, well, what do you mean by one of us? And they said, oh, well, you know, a migrant's got the position. And I said, well, you know, I'm fourth generation Australian. I've never lived outside of the country. I, 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 I um, only speak English um, and I've never worked within the sector. Uh, I appreciate your confidence, mm. but I, I, I guess I wanted to challenge this notion of, you know, mm. who, you know how, who, who is us? Yes. And, um, and how do we define who is us? And um, so they were the conversations that I started to have. Um, and, and what I noticed about Logan at that stage, so this is 2006, Logan used to talk about multiculturalism. You know, it was a, already a very multicultural city, but they used to talk about this issue of multiculturalism was, it was uh, an issue that they need to be, to be managed, to be managed mm-hmm. well. And I remember having conversations with people at the time in, in local council, and I said, oh, I don't understand what, what's, what needs to be managed here. Uh, isn't this something that should be invested in and capitalised upon? Something that should be positively exploited? Isn't mm. this the strength of the community? I don't, you know, to me, you, you manage a problem, mm. and mm. You, and you invest in an opportunity. And mm. I saw saw the cultural diversity of, of Logan as being more of an opportunity. Um, I've always had a belief that no matter how you come to the country, whether you come by boat, whether you come by plane, whether you come as a um, as a refugee, whether you become a, a skilled migrant or or through family. You've already shown certain traits that are useful for the country that you're coming to, you know, problem solving and networking and planning. These are all skills that are really useful for, for a nation. And so I saw cultural diversity as this, this great opportunity mm. to have this influx of people that, that, that have all those skill sets. 
Um, and so that really excited me about working in the space. And, uh, and really seeing the diversity, because I know with Logan, mm-hmm. um, it's this sort of little microcosm of Australia, isn't it? Like there's over 200 different nationalities, I think uh, someone told me once down there, yeah, which yeah. sort of is, is a bit of a, a sort of a blueprint of what Australia is made up of, of all these different multicultural. Um, I, I suppose I did struggle with the word multicultural, as you and I know, mm-hmm. we both um, tried to come to terms with the cross-cultural word, you know, at some period, and then now I'm stuck on intercultural, mm-hmm. you know, as, as almost, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not the perfect answer, but it's, for me, I'm more comfortable because it's inclusive of First Nations people. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt a little frustrated that, um, that more recently, that, you know, that multicultural people, um, as that term is governed, you know, in terms of refugees, asylum seekers and, you know, new migrants, were never exposed to the First Nations story mm-hmm. as we weren't growing mm-hmm. up. You know, that we've all missed this great opportunity to understand this ancient culture and their connection with the land and their culture and their history and how we can even interweave our own stories into theirs. Do you think that's something that's a worthwhile pursuit? Oh, look, I think it's a really important conversation. Um, Certainly, again, when I first came into the uh, so-called multicultural sector, um, I remember going to a few conferences and, and people from a migrant background would stand up and talk about Aboriginal communities and, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. They talk about our brothers and our sisters in the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. You know, we understand their pain because their pain is, is our pain. It's a shared pain. And, uh, and, I, and again, I challenge that. You know, I said if you look at the, the statistics and you look at the, um, uh, the health and well-being indicators of people from a migrant background, compared to people from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background, they're vastly different. So yeah. I, I, I can't see that there, there are similarities. When I was government worker, I used to sit on a lot of committees that often mixed uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, uh, First Nations issues, with, with multicultural issues. And and uh, I was a big advocate that you need to keep them separate uh, mm. because they're very different issues. I mean, so there was some overlap, certainly, mm. but but uh, the experiences were very different. And... and, and you know, I'd see what would happen whenever a multicultural, to- a multicultural topic would come up. People's eyes would light up because they think about festivals and song and dance, and they get really inspired and kind of get really energetic. And when uh, First Nations issues came up, people were just going to drop. And like, what are we going to do? And you know, the mood of the room would go down. And so, obviously, where would what would people want to talk about? They'd want to talk about multicultural issues because that was more interesting and more positive and more optimistic. And so I didn't think um, the First Nations issues were getting sufficient airspace. So I was a big believer that um, they needed to be talked about in different forums. Mm. Um, so, but back to your point about, you know, should be there a sharing of, of knowledge between new migrants and uh, about uh, First Nations history? Absolutely. And that's certainly something that uh, I talked a lot at length with um, the uh, Logan elders about, the importance of um, the elders being part of any kind of presentation to 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 new migrants and, and, and their 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 roles within the community are being acknowledged. Um, when a, a new migrant um, or refugee or asylum seeker comes to Australia, and uh, we have a mutual friend in um, Costa mm. uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, mm. an amazing man that Peter had introduced me to, and to hear his story of coming to Australia 
um, as a refugee. Uh, could have ended up in America or in Europe, um, but he came here. Um, and, you know, he's very happy here because he's been here over 11 years now and he's an author mm-hmm. and he's set up a charity. Um, but he taught me that as someone now that is determined to remain an Australian and his grandchildren are born here, um, that he he can see that there are still challenges even for new migrants from Africa as the Democratic Republic of Congo to sort of feel comfortable around the, uh, you know, the early Europeans and the British, you know, they don't know how to interact either. You know, he's not quite familiar with the First Nation story either. So there's a lot of work still to be done in this space, isn't there, about sort of bringing these different uh, groups together. And probably same with the broader Chinese community and Korean community in bringing them into uh, or connecting them to the story of Australia, you know, the first first Australian history, you know, including, you know, the colonisation and the convict history and the farming history and all of where this has led us to today, where we are today. Uh, in, in a much better situation, I feel, uh, in my observation, than, say, a lot of other countries overseas that are not dissimilar to us, but we have a great opportunity to bring all these different pillars, if you like, multicultural, First Nations and non-Indigenous, you know, from the early uh, migrants, together as one Australia. What do you think it really means to be Australian? What What is that core essence that makes us Australian, regardless of where we come from, China, Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria, Vietnam, you know, and so on. What what really defines us as Australians, in your view? Oh, to be completely honest, Greg, I, I think we're still working that one out. Yes, um, we're a work in progress, aren't we? Uh, well, absolutely. Certainly, you know, we've got tens of thousands of years of history that exists here. So we're not a we're not a new nation, and I'm really pleased that the national anthem lyrics have changed. Um, is change to one word going to make a difference? Uh, you know, no, of course it's not. But but it, it, you know, this is this is a complex issue, and and, and so it needs multiple solutions. That that's one part of the solution, mm. and it's a and it's important symbolic part. I I, I think, um, it, you know, I think, it, do do it. How do we define ourselves as Australian? You know, post colonisation, we're still a very very young country. And, 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 and almost still in adolescence or emerging out of adolescence and really, in that sense, still trying to work out what our identity is. I, I don't know what it means. No, you're probably story. right. We're like, we're coming through that rites of passage, that understanding as teenagers. Mm. But that's not true of First Nations people because they've, they've sort of, there's a lot of old wisdom that you can find within that deep culture. Oh, oh absolutely. But yeah. certainly... You know, First Nations people isn't the whole of Australia. No, that's so, right. So we can't define who we are by who, who are First Nations people. Certainly not. And certainly, there's there's been a change in the population. And and so as as in any any kind of household, when there's a change in you know people coming into a into a household, you have to change the identity of you know who you know what, what, who is our who makes up our home now. And uh, and so that's what I think what what's happening in our country. Um, and that's really exciting. 
Mm. Um, um, I want to come back to the term multiculturalism. You know, language is always really interesting to me. I probably being a speech pathologist from way way back. You know, language is is, is critical. Um, language uh, is always an opportunity to to increase our um, our awareness and also to spread awareness of, of complex issues. But it's also uh, a dangerous area to play in. So I have mixed feelings about the term multiculturalism. I, I don't like to refer to multicultural communities. I don't because I think that you know surely Australia is just one multicultural communities and that's inclusive of uh, First Nations people and includes migrants, inclusive of uh, people of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Celtic background. You know that's what multiculturalism means. You know it's everybody. Um, at the same time, there was a strong kind of political move to get rid of the term at some stage. And um, when that was happening, um, I was determined to hold on to the term because I didn't want it taken away from me by mm. force, yes. uh, which is what it felt like. Mm. Um, almost to be ashamed to be um, um, to talk about uh, cultural diversity at the time. Um, and a big move to um, um, heighten our, 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 our white and our, our um, uh, Judeo-Christian kind of background. Mm. Uh, I didn't think that reflected who we are, who we were becoming, and so uh, I really resisted the attempt to... to so how long ago was this? Is this recent or a while? No, well, no, it's probably... I think, it's, I think it comes in waves, mm. goes up and down, and we still get get discussions of every now and again. Right, right now, there's a... There's a um, there's apparently uh, people feel like... Um, uh, the most threatened race in Australia uh, uh, is the Anglo-Celtic, Anglo-Saxon uh, race or, or white people that is being threatened. I'm not so sure that the statistics bear that out. People may feel threatened. I don't feel threatened. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you're just one person. Yeah, and I, I know. And, and I know. But there's some fairly strong voices are saying yep. that, uh, that they're being threatened. Oh, I, I'm not convinced that that's actually the case. Um, no, I think it's... <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? In Australia, they're still the majority, but yet they are feeling that they're a minority. Maybe they're getting a sense of what a lot of other cultures have had to feel. Yeah. You know, a sense of, oh, you know, if you're a white, middle-aged man, white fellow, you know, you have a lot to deal with here. Um, But, and I get that because even in the business sector, or even probably true of the community organisations, I'm not sure, but... I know particularly in the Australian uh, companies, you look at the top 150 CEOs of most of the Australian companies and 150 of those will be white European British descendants. You know, most you won't see a, a, an Asian face, an Indian face, an Aboriginal face, Pacific Islander face, a Japanese, a, you know, and, and so you realise that we're not yet quite over that Judeo-Christian Anglo sort of dominance still. You know, no, we won't be for some time. That's right. And let's, let's be. And we're talking the truth. It could be another generation, or even two, before that's fully through that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, um, rather than getting upset about it that we can't do anything in this moment, but that change is slowly happening. I, I was at a forum recently, um, and you know, somebody said to me. Uh, she was a lovely person, um, but she was really trying to understand and get her head around the issues. She said to me, she said, Peter, why don't white people want to give up their privilege? And I kind of went, well, why would you? <laughs> you know, like, that's the thing about privilege. It's, it's quite a good thing to have. Um, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I said, you know, there's this 
thing about that often gets turned within white privilege and you know, the concepts of systemic raci- racism and, and un- unconscious bias. Mm. So we started and got into conversation about unconscious bias. I said, the thing about unconscious bias is it's unconscious. Mm. So it doesn't mean that people are being deliberately or malevolently racist mm. or trying to harm people. But but through the system, the system is causing harm. And mm. so, that, so it is biased towards uh, or against people of colour. Uh, um, but... I think we have to return that much of that is 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 not necessarily conscious, and so our role is to bring the unconscious into the consciousness, mm, yes. and 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 uh, and to be much more aware of that. But you know, why? You know, mm. I want privilege. <laughs> you know, I want privilege. <laughs> and now, uh, are you finding at the moment in the current climate of twenty twenty one and what we've been through with the pandemic? Uh, I'm noticing a, a, a sort of a there's a and I don't watch the mainstream news, so I'm not, uh, you know, a fan of following mainstream mm. media. But there's there's an undertone, even though I can pick up on it, of a very strong sentiment of clashing with cultures, particularly at the moment with China, you know, in in Australia. Mm. And you know, it's a it's a complex one because of even the relationship that Australia, in its sort of colonial sort of setting, had back in 1860s. You know, to now we've got this um, interesting sort of polarisation between Australia and America and China. And Australia is sort of a, what would you call it, a, a sub-department of the American mm. sort of idea uh, or the American experiment, you know, that wasn't only a couple of hundred years ahead of us in terms of colonisation and, you know, moving there on top of their First Nations people there. But China itself, as it's grown over the last hundred years into a, you know, there's more wealth, more people have been lifted out of poverty, uh, billions of people, I think, in fact, in in this hundred years, you know. So from our perspective uh, in the West, looking at China, who's gone through a communist regime, has the communist regime been good for those people, the farmers that are now wealthier, they have more opportunity to travel, they have more opportunity to be, you know, consuming things and making things and so on. But are they a threat or do you think that's just a misreading of the situation? Is it a bit too much of the Trump sort of trumping up about that that we've caught the last couple of years? So Greg, um, I don't feel in any way qualified to be able to comment on Chinese politics and um, uh, you know, just because I have Chinese heritage doesn't mean that I understand Chinese politics in mm. any way. And I'm not, I don't even, I guess I'm, 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 I'm cautious of going down that track. Uh, and that's not because I'm trying to defend China. I, mm. I'm certain that it, at, at many levels uh, they are a threat to, to the Australian government. Absolutely. Is the Chinese government a threat to the Australian government? Probably yes, in certain respects. That being said, I, I, you know, recently uh, people of Chinese heritage, people but born in Australia, were asked by an Australian senator at a, at a uh, hearing to uh, swear their allegiance effectively to, to Australia. And quite rightly, they said, well, why? And he said, what's the problem with that? You know, are you, do you have a problem in, in swearing allegiance to Australia? Clearly, they were being asked to do that because they looked Chinese. Mm. Um, in, in a similar respect, I, you know, I'm, I'm not comfortable about you know, commenting mm. on, on Chinese politics just because I'm Chinese. Mm. Um, I can comment on them as an Australian, uh, yep. but not necessarily 
as a Chinese Australian. No, no, that's thank you, thank you. With Australia, where do you see it, or where would you like to see in a crystal ball where we should be in five to ten years to where we are today? What would be some of the things and achievements you'd like to see Australia transform into? Five to ten years. So that's not a huge time frame in the, in the history of, of any country. Look, so we're not talking about huge gains. Um, I'd like to see more people of colour into senior executive positions, on board positions. Um, I'd like to see uh, um, more migrants um, uh, being given greater opportunities for um, career transition and education. I, I guess the, the, the kind of terms, education and employment are re really two big areas. Um, I'd, I guess I'd like to see a shift in the public sentiment on how we treat uh, refugees and asylum seekers. I think uh, probably the majority of Australians think that we could be a little bit crueler than we are now. Uh, I've personally, I find it more difficult to you know, see how we could be more more crueler than we are now. But a lot of Australians tend to think that the policies we have uh, probably need to be a bit stricter. So I'd like to see a shift in that. Um, whether that happens or not, I don't know. Um, what else would I like to see? Um, I, I guess I'd like to see mainstream media more reflective of the community that actually exists. Um, most of what you watch on TV about you know, Australian shows, it's, it's very white looking predominantly mm, mm. and doesn't really reflect who we are as a nation. So, you know, the, the, the adage that I, 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 I can't be me unless I see me, you know, is a really true one. And, 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 and so we need to be able to find ourselves. You need to be able to walk into any space or walk in, whether that be a media space or be a physical space and be able to find yourself. That's what I'd like to be able to, you know, more experiences of that and people feeling comfortable with that. So what's your thoughts as we sort of wind up on Invasion Day or Australia Day? Mm. What, what would I call it? Well, uh, what, what's your thought? Would you change the date? Um, yeah, probably, yes. I, I, I think I am in favour of changing the date. I, I've been thinking a lot lately about May 9th because that was the actual first the sitting of the first ever Parliament of Australia. Peacefully, I might add. Um, and, you know, so that's the actual day that our government sat down for the first time as a government and started to make decisions. And that was May 9th. And I thought, that seems like a fairly, um, uh, a day that everybody can celebrate. Now, what I've been advised, I don't know about May 9th, but it, it does seem to be difficult to find almost any day which is, is going to be completely comfortable for everybody. Um, can we still recognise Australia Day as a day uh, that is purely about celebration when uh, a big part of our population don't feel like they've got a lot to celebrate on that day? That's problematic to me, that that scenario can continue to exist. Um, if we are to retain Australia Day, then maybe what we on that on the uh, on that day maybe what we need to do is is broaden the narrative around what that day means. That mm. it isn't all positive. That there are negatives as well, yeah. and that that to me is about how we deal with history. Is you actually broaden the discussion about what what happened, and that's what Stan Grant sort of suggests mm. Mm. when he looked at all the dates, the possibilities of 
what might be other good dates. Sure. He kept saying changing any date could potentially be fraught with danger. You know, looking at how to heal that one that we've chosen now and how to bring together those two conflicting ideas and make them work together mm. you know, somehow. And that is in the narrative and you know, it is in the way that we collectively talk about it openly and even just having these discussions and thoughts, you know, and allowing viewers to look into it more and have those discussions around the kitchen table. And Look, it's complex. Um, I think there's probably more learned, more intelligent, more, more well-positioned people than, than me to comment on it. But, you know, uh, am I happy with how Australia Day is observed at the moment? No, I'm not. Mm. So, Pete, in closing, the last question I'm going to ask you is about uh, the treaty. Mm -hmm. So you've heard a lot about it. We heard Yothi Indi sing about it 20, over 25 mm -hmm. years ago, I think, something. That's a long time now. And we're still at this point. We had Uluru Statement of the Heart. Are you familiar at all with that? Is there anything? Oh, broadly. Broadly yeah. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. think that through this conversation that sooner or later we will have a treaty for our First Nations people? Oh, do I think we will have one? Oh, mm. That's different from do I think we should have one? <laughs> well, both. Do you think we should have one? We'll start that. Uh, well, I probably do lean towards it that it, it would be good to have one. I think that, um, uh, you know, clearly by definition the country was invaded. Um, and um, uh, were, there, were there wars in the country uh, over that invasion? Absolutely. And... Um, uh, so some kind of um, acknowledgement of that uh, through treaty um, uh, would be useful. Uh, you know, treaty in itself is not going to be the, the solution to mm. a lot of the challenges that our First Nations people are experiencing. Uh, and, and, and by definition, uh, non-First Nations people are experiencing as well, because, you know, if, if one part of our population is suffering, uh, so should we all uh, suffer for, for their suffering. Um, so, you know, that's not, not the only solution. But, you know, treaty will go a long way, I think, to, to um, contributing to a solution. Do I think that there will be a treaty? Oh, I'm not confident of that. Um, again, I'm not necessarily the best positioned people, uh, person to, 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 to predict whether it will happen or not. But I, I think that um, we, we live in a country that um, is not very comfortable with change. And once we've got something locked in, we tend to like to keep it that way. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. All right. Pete, I really appreciate our conversation today. Thank and you. Thank you. And is there anything in closing you'd like to... No, look, look thank you for the opportunity. Um, the, probably the last thing I just want to mention, I probably should have mentioned it earlier, but right now the Queensland Government uh, is holding a parliamentary inquiry into uh, vilification and hate crime laws in this state. I think it's a great opportunity for the community to participate in those hearings, in mm. that inquiry. Um, I, I, you know, my belief is that you know, legislation helps define the type of community that we all want to live in. And here's an opportunity for Queenslanders to actually shape by, by, by law, through law the sort of community that we want to live in. So I really encourage people to get involved in that, you know. Uh, wow. uh, put in written submissions, attend the public hearings, uh, apply to, to speak at the public hearings. Um, 
really really how long does that go on for uh that'll be for the rest of this year i think the written submissions close in the middle of july so there's only a couple more weeks yep. and then the public hearings commence and they'll uh but the report has to be furnished to to the government early next year so it's a relatively small time frame uh, but it's a really important inquiry oh that's great info thanks pete no problems. <laughs> thanks heaps thank I you thank you thank you Cheers. and goodbye to everyone thank you for listening hope you enjoyed and don't forget to subscribe at our website, www.walkin3worlds.com. And we'll see you next week.